All right, if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Psalms. If you don't, I will personally go get you a Bible. Raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. The ushers will get them to you. I will bring one to you, whatever you want. Book Psalms, except Bailey. I'm not bringing Bailey, because he was in the Marine Corps as I was, so I just tell him to go get his own. The book of Psalms. Just scroll down, not too far, Psalms 2, Psalm 2. And I actually want to kick off in kind of a weird way. I'm known for doing this, so why not continue the tradition? Um, I'm going to put some slides up, and I want you guys to participate, okay? It's, it's hump day, everyone just, we're halfway through the week, we're slumping into Thursday, that sort of thing, right? So I get a little pep, and I hope you'll see why it ties in. I don't do this just to be cute. Well, maybe a little bit, but... So I'm gonna, what's going to happen is I'm going to put up a picture of a kid. Anyone heard of Reasons My Son Is Crying? That website, maybe a couple of the young people. It's a, it's, a, it's a website that began by one guy that's got a kid like I do, a young toddler, and he just began taking pictures of reasons his son was crying, right? And, and what he did is he eventually opened it up to other people to submit it. So it's not just his kid, obviously. There's little girls in here too. But as as I'm not promoting this site. I don't you know, get like money for saying that or anything like that. But what I want you guys to do is I'm going to show you a picture, and then I just want us to say together, cheesy, yeah, get used to it, don't worry about it, just say, why are you crying? And then I'm going to show you why that particular child, as submitted by their parent, was crying. You think you can handle it? We'll do it ten times, all right? So by like three, you have to nail this, all right? So the first one looks a little bit like this, okay? These are actual pictures of actual babies and actual life-threatening scenarios, okay? So I want us to try this. I'm going to say one, two, three, and you're just going to simply say, why are you crying? And then I'm going to tell you why they're crying, all right? So we're going to try this. One, two, three. Why are you crying? The answer is she realized she doesn't fit through a five-inch space. All right, so let's try this again. Some of you like shouted out the reason you thought they were crying. That's not how the game works, all right? So second slide looks like this. The second poor little child in a life-threatening situation looks like this. All right, I actually don't know what that whole lock thing is. That's not what this has to do. But count of three, one, two, three. Why are you crying? Clearly, he didn't want to share his leg hole, okay? The girl did not seem to mind at all. She also looks like she's from London or something like that, so. All right, next one. This little girl, we're wondering what? Why? Heaven forbid the Skype video with grandma and grandpa froze. I tried Skyping with my little niece two nights ago, and it was the worst experience we've ever had on Skype, so I could relate. So next one. I'm already losing count, so I don't know how many more we have. All right, so we want to ask this little boy a question, which is? This little genius put himself in timeout for no reason and then proceeded to cry about it. Next picture looks like this. Oh, she's not happy. So we want to know what? The cable modem stopped flashing. This is the next generation, okay? Watch out. These things freak them out, okay? Next picture. This little guy is having a bad day, so we want to know? His nuggets weren't hot enough, then they took too long to get hot enough. How many of you have kids, have nieces, have nephews, have grandkids? Put your hands up. These are all the people that fully understand. The rest of you are like, I don't get it. It's not that funny. You'll see. Okay? This is you, actually, just a few years ago. Okay? Next picture. We got one question for this little girl, which is? 
Clearly, she didn't want to hand over the money. Next picture. This little guy having a bad day. So we ask him. He did not want to hold my hand while walking home from daycare. So he took a nap. Maybe this is the last one. Next one. Nope. This one is my favorite. I identify the most with this little guy. So we want to know. Clearly, he, his hand hurt from punching his brother in the mouth. <laughs> this should be the last one. This one is in honor of Pastor Rob. We want to know. Because they said that she couldn't have any more bacon. So, the reason I say this is because you look at Psalm 2 and it says what? Why do the nations rage? God goes, why are you crying? That's what we look like to God. Even more specifically, that's what people who oppose God look like from heaven. It says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? We're in the book of Psalms, and what are these? Songs, prayers, praise, right? This was a, this was a hymnal for the Israelis, Right? To testify to God's truth, things that they could pray, things that they could sing. Okay, there's going to be some harsh language in Psalm 2. It's a big one. It's concise, packs a big punch. These are things that they would sing about. We don't sing about some of the stuff that they were singing about back then. Right? And so there are vehicles of prayer and praise for the Israelis to be reminded of God's truth. To be embedded in their lives as a reminder of God's sovereignty, God's plan, God's promise, God's purpose. God's foreshadowing everything. And at this time, there, were, there was Israeli rule. The kings were actually where they were supposed to be as ordained by God. But there was a revolt happening. So they've got this authority structure set up. And some of the folks that aren't necessarily just you know, congregants or, or normal people, but they're not kings. They're in authority, but they're in authority over Gentiles. They're getting together. The other word for rage is like they're clamoring noisily. They're just getting together and just kind of clamoring against God. Right? Getting together, just frustrated with God, frustrated with providence, and they don't believe it. And, and, and I, there's a clear correlation with the state of our own nation. We just got people getting together and they're mad about God. They're mad that he's ordained certain things, that he's allowed other things to happen. So they get together and they talk and they have blogs and Twitter for crying out loud. And, they just, and they're constantly clamoring noisily about God because they're not impressed with him. They're impressed with themselves. And God sits up like that and just looks down and says, why on earth are you crying? Those kids, no joke, they, I mean, Ethan, I got out of the car today at five o'clock right out there and he cried because I took Chipotle bag out of the van. He cried, right? And then he got out of his car seat and he said, well, okay, daddy, you carry it. I said, okay. So I started, to, I took one step and he cried. Why are you crying now? Because I want to carry it. Well, you want to carry it then, right? And God's like, this is just the absurd cycle of humanity. So I want it my way. Well, fine. You're, you're going to have, no, then I want it this way. Well, then that's going to happen. Well, I wasn't impressed with that either. And so we go the other way and we're swinging back and forth. God's just like, why are you crying? And we get, we get worried, right? It says, and the kings of the earth, Verse 2, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. And so like we said, people are getting together and they're mad. They're not impressed with God. So they want to overthrow his promise. They want to overthrow his leadership. They want to tear down the Ten Commandments. They want to tear down things that God has been establishing in the land. And God just looks down on us like, that's what what we look like. 
And he's like, really? You're going to oppose me? That's cute. Right? And it's kind of cute, too. Don't you feel bad, parents? You're like, oh. Chris and I laugh all the time. We're like, oh, he's over there distraught. He thinks his life is ending, and it's hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious, right? Because we know that, that, like, in that moment, they actually believe. At that age, they actually believe. These are, like, really, really, really bad scenarios. So I'm like, oh, no, there's a theological correlation, right? I shouldn't have been. And, and you start to realize, like, how simple it is. You look at the child. That's why God gave us kids, so we'd understand stuff about him. I'm a young parent, got a three-year-old, a one-year-old. Here's the secret. I got a third one on the way. All right, so thank you. I was glad to do my part. I was glad to do my part, right? So, right? And so I'm full on understanding. I'm realizing it's like this is why God gave us children so we understand more about him. We understand about patience, righteous anger. Parents, you, you need, gentlemen, you need to have some righteous anger. Someone, right, wants to hurt your family, you better have some righteous anger. Jesus did. We're going to talk about that, right? That's the part of Jesus I love talking about, right? And so we get all concerned that these people are clamoring against God. And I see the same thing, though. So we look at them, we're like, yeah, there's always people trying to take him down. And then what do we do in response? We get all mad and frustrated, too. Right? We think all the politicians, and we start really, really starting to almost pulling down God's sovereignty with how much we worry about those that oppose God because that's how he sees them. He's just up there like, really? And we're down here just making our own noise in the church. Just mad about politics and mad about school and mad about college and mad about all the different vestiges and places in public life that things are being torn down. Okay? And so we've got this whole kind of revolt happening at the time where these Gentile leaders are clamoring against God, and it says, they're against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, so this is the people that are causing the revolt, that are stirring together some noise, and they want to revolt against the king in Israel. They want to tear that down. So this is what they're saying. They say this, they say, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. See, what happens is that when, when you're, you're out of relationship with God, when you're on your own, you're trying to live in this secular world. By the way, the more I read the Old Testament, I was thinking about this last night. I'm teaching through Hosea with the college ministry. The more I read the Old Testament, the more I'm being convicted that you just flat out have to make a conscious decision to deny Jesus. What's the point of the Old Testament? One word. You get one word. What is it? Jesus, right? It just points forward. Some of you are like, oh man, there's that whole first part of the book that we don't really talk. No. Everything points forward to the coming Christ. Everything, okay? And so you start to realize, it says, let us break their bonds. The people that are not in covenant, what they, their view of what's going on here, their view of what's going on in Israel, in the temple, in this covenant, what it's like to be in this covenant, faithful relationship with God, is that it's bondage, right? How many of you have experienced that? You're just like, no, see, I, yeah, I don't go to church. See, I'm free. Like, I'm free. No, you're not. And that's how they viewed them. They said, look, they've got us in bonds under this, this archaic, barbaric understanding of God that interacts with people and, and has provision for us and cares for us and provides for us and installs leaders and is going to install the ultimate leader and return. And they're just like, it's nonsense. You're, just, you're in bondage. We've got to break the bonds. They don't realize that God is not, he does not bring bondage. He breaks bondage. He frees you from the law of sin and death that we've instilled on ourselves. And this is God's response. I love this part about God. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. 
What gave you the right to laugh at those kids? Think about it. Why was it funny? Been there, done that. Right? But wouldn't you be willing to state that in some sort of, not a pure, you know, not a great analogy, but like you're able to see the bigger picture. Right? Like, Ethan, get out. You can carry the bag of chips from Chipotle. Right? And what am I doing? I'm surveying the parking lot. Make sure there's not a car going to come hit him. While he's freaking out about the chips. Right? And, and so we're able to pull back as parents and, and aunts and uncles and grandparents and see the bigger picture. And to be honest, when you look at the little stuff, it's just flat silly and God's up there laughing. I don't like a God that laughs at me. I love a God that laughs at us. We need to take Jesus more seriously and ourselves less seriously in the church, right? We get all really hopped up on ourselves, all right? I do the same thing. That's, the, that's one of the easiest temptations becoming a preacher. I love Wednesday night services because it was a little over two years ago that Pastor Rob called me from the congregation, first time, Sunday after church, says, what are you doing Wednesday? I said, I don't know. What do you need me to do? Preach. <laughs> Hilarious. He's like, be ready in season, out of season. Oh, he's bringing the Bible up, right? But one of the biggest concerns, one of the biggest things you have to resist is getting really hopped up on yourself. You do. You're like, hey, is the video on, Jason? Is it focused? Because I don't want to be focused on the drums or anything. And you get all, and how fast can we get the video up? I got a lot of people on Facebook waiting for that sort of thing, right? And you just start to get hopped up on yourself. And we got a God that sits up in sovereignty and he pulls back in the parking lot and he says, look, I'm just making sure cars don't hit you. And you're concerned about the chips, right? And we're saying, ah, right? And he sits up there and he laughs, but this isn't a distant laugh, Right? Religion teaches man to pursue God. The gospel is that God pursues man. You got to really invert your thinking because a lot of us come to church and say, look, we're learning how to pursue God. And there's a place for that in this right theological understanding. But you need to understand that the gospel is first and foremost that we left and God is pursuing us. Again, I'm teaching through the book of Hosea. Pastor Rob said I could teach anything I wanted tonight. It was very tempting to crack Hosea and call everyone a prostitute right? Because that's what the book's about. It's in the Bible, okay? Don't take issue with me, okay? I get to call the college students for like 14 weeks. Like, you guys are the prostitutes and the whole thing, right? And we get this idea that we run from God and then we have to turn around and like sort of trek our way back. And there's hills and forests and like this and that. When in actuality, we run, God's pursuing us and all we do is repent, turn around, there he is. Like creepy, like God, were you there the whole time? On my heels, really? Because he was. He, he pursues us as we run from him. All we do is turn. Bam, that's it. You don't have to like turn around and make up ground. Like, oh, man. Right? I'm going to drive the video guys crazy. Right? I'm just going to do this the whole time. Okay? <laughs> right? So it's not this distance laugh that God's talking about. He's laughing because he's holding everything. The last song we sang, age to age he stands. Time is in his hand. He sits over the concept of time. Everything in our life is dictated by time. It doesn't stop. We can't stop it. We can't get it back. We can't go back. Everything we understand has a beginning and an end. We started, we end. Our life is but a dash between two dates on a gravestone. Everything starts and ends. We don't understand that all of that is taking place in a concept that God just sort of sits over and is like, none of that affects me. He's just like looking at it like, what does the front of time look like? He looks underneath time. This is the concept of time. So he sits and he laughs because he sees the grand picture of it all. He says, look, you're down there clamoring. You're worried about what's going on down there. And I'm holding the whole thing together in my sovereignty. And he's going to show us kind of how this plays out. So I don't want us to take this laugh as much as I think it's, it's fun to talk about. It's not a distant laugh. He's laughing as a parent laughs at his kid. 
So you don't see the big picture. You don't understand what's really going on. You don't understand that all this is being mediated by me. You think what you do has just a ton of weight. Some of us here, and myself included, for a long time I worshipped, I worshipped, I worshipped politics. And they dictated my emotion. Every blog, every news article, I had my own, thousands of people were reading my blog. I was just ranting and raving, and they dictated my happiness. I had no joy. Because I was so worried about all the noisy clamoring going on, and God's sitting up there just be like, when are you going to get it? This is a joke. This is hilarious. And so he's laughing, not from a distance, but he's laughing because he sees the grand picture, and he knows what's coming, and he knows what's yet to happen. So in verse 4, it says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. That just means mockery. Uh-oh. Oh, see, now we're talking about that Old Testament God, and he was mean. He was, he was, he was not nice. And, oh, and then it says, he shall speak to them in his wrath. Do you serve a God that's wrathful? Or do you believe the nonsense that love is God? translated by the world as, well, God is love. And that's true. That's a biblical statement. That's one of his attributes. But do you, do you understand that wrath must be a part of your picture of God? Wrath, like an onslaught. And, and there's generally two planes to the whole wrath thing, right? There's active wrath. We've seen that on the cross. We see that in the institution of hell. And then there's passive wrath where God says, you're going to do your own thing and I'm simply going to allow it to happen. And, and so Christians get confused at where we are. And I, I preach this a lot because it brings clarity. And I have a lot of students that tell me that they, it was a gift given to me. And I just try to give it out almost virtually every time I preach. They joke. They say, you do the five chapters in Revelation every sermon. I say, good. Just remember those things, right? Five chapters of the gospel. This is, what I'm going, this is where I'm going with this. We forget the chapter we're in. Flat out Christians just don't know it. It started in creation where God created everything through a sermon. He said it. Jesus made it happen. We learn in what Colossians says, by Jesus, all things were created for Jesus. Jesus is the mode by which everything was created. Like, I'm pretty impressed with my body. You, you should be more impressed with the guy that made it. That's, his name is Jesus, right? Pretty impressed with the mountains. You should be impressed with Jesus. He's the one that made them. He's the mode by which God created everything. And then the fall came, okay? We separated. We ran. We ran off into the other direction, God what? He came down to the garden. He pursued us, right? He said, where are you, Adam? You've sinned. Just be reconciled to me. Come out with it. Tell me what you've done. And then we, what, we go right in. That's only Genesis 3. You're like, a lot has happened already, right? And then the whole lead up, the rest of the Old Testament is pointing forward. So the first chapter is creation. The second chapter in God's overarching story is the fall. The third one is redemption. And that's the cross. Central point of all human history. A great place to start with an atheist is what year is it? 2013. Okay, so you admit something happened about 2,000 years ago, right? You just start right there. Because the entire calendar is based off something happened about 2,000 years ago. That's year 6,000. No one ever says that. Please, come on. Something happened where God came down again, pursued as the perfect missionary coming from one culture to another. A priest, a prophet, a king comes down, swoops in, redemption on the cross, reconciled. All the law fulfilled, all the Psalms fulfilled, all the everything, okay? Everything in the Old Testament. Think about all the different ways you can see Jesus. Christophanies in the Old Testament point to Jesus. Analogous service, service performed by people that Jesus would ultimately do perfectly. Titles, events, prophecy. Over and over and over, the, the Old Testament is just doing this to that third chapter. 
You're created, you've fallen, God's gonna fix it because I'm king. And so he swoops down. We've got chapter four, which I'm gonna leave blank, and then Revelation. Have you read Revelation? Oh my goodness, right? Jesus gets a tattoo, right? Gets a white robe, dips it in blood, puts it on, right? You never mess with the guy that shows up to a fight in a white robe, okay? Right, like you show up in a black tank top, let's do this, I'm ready. You're like, what do you show up in a white robe? Dude's confident, right? Dude's pretty confident he's not gonna get that thing dirty, Okay? Right? He's got a sword for a tongue, fire for eyes. Like, that's, oh, that's not nice Jesus. That's not, oh, that's, that's revelation Jesus. I dig him. That's thug Jesus, right? He's coming back. Speaks of God's wrath. He poured out his active wrath on the cross, but we're in this fourth chapter of passive wrath. And we're just floating, and Christians look back and say, well, the cross happened 2,000 years ago, and I've read Revelation. It's kind of freaky, but, uh, but that, that hasn't happened yet, so we're just sort of in this fourth chapter, and I don't really know what to do. I guess I just go to church. Congrats, you, you and the Pharisees both. I guess, I guess I just go to Bible studies. Great, you and the scribes. Okay, what's this chapter? Where are we? It's reconciliation. Paul writes that the whole earth is groaning to be reconciled to God. If you've ever seen Transformers, there's a scene where one of the biggest, gnarliest, like snake-looking things just like opens up his funnel of a mouth and he just begins sucking like all of earth into himself. That's actually in a much cooler way, kind of what Jesus is doing. Like the whole thing is, see a lot of times we just think that the earth is doing this, right? And God's just gonna say to heck with it all in the end. We don't, we don't realize that God is sovereign king and he's actually reconciling all things to himself, right? All sin, all creation, everything was fractured in the fall. And so we were created, we fell, redemption on the cross, reconciliation is the Christian mission and then revelation or the consummation in the fifth chapter. And so we, we sort of read the Old Testament like, well, that was a really mean God, right? Like, just, just really, really mean for a bunch of books. And then like 400 years of silence where clearly he went through therapy, right? And worked it all out and talked about it. And then sent Jesus to say sorry. Like, that's the modern understanding, right? Like, mad God, therapy, Jesus. Right? And we all get, we, we love Santa Claus Jesus. Like you hop up on his lap at the mall, right? Gives you some presents. Okay? We love that. But we don't necessarily always deal with what God's talking about. He says, yeah, I have wrath. And he should have wrath, both active and passive. Why? Because if he truly is holy, if he truly is love, he must hate sin. You parents understand this. You, you're, you're, you hate sin. And it becomes very, very real in your children. Defiance, rebellion, dishonoring, lying, stealing. It could be enough. It could be stealing just a, a marble from you know, church daycare. You're aghast. You are a sinner, child, right? And we, we can't stand it. We go back. You got to talk, right? And God has wrath, and that's good because a good parent hates sin. They hate wrong. God hates wrong. It's actually part of his beauty, is that he has wrath. Don't skip over the wrath because if you were to preach word by word, which we do here in Calvary Chapel, you preach all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Are you gonna talk about God's love more or his wrath? His wrath. Over 600 times, anger, wrath, judgment, malice. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we just glaze over the cross. That's what I'm saying it actually all built to and it's building again. That's what it's pointing to. And so a lot of us, we have trouble trusting a God that speaks of wrath, but we need to know we take 
solace in the fact that he hates what's going on. I deal in the college ministry. I'll be open about this. That the main sin that we struggle with in the college ministry, i.e. the guys, is porn. They tried to do a major study in the UK about porn. They simply wanted to take a look at development between guys that had viewed porn, guys that hadn't viewed porn. One problem, couldn't find a single guy that hadn't viewed porn. You know how much grant money is sitting on that? Like you, you think they would just fake it. Like, dude, just pretend like you've never seen it. He's like, I can't. I have. It's disgusting. God sits over Thailand. Yeah, he's angry. He sits over Detroit. He sits over major metropolises where women and children are being drugged into sex trade. Yeah, he's angry. That's a God I serve. Yeah, he's mad. He's saying, you know what? I'm going to lift my hand of mercy and passively, I'm going to allow this to happen. Some of you struggle with that. He's allowing this to happen. Everything passes through his sovereign hand. But you need to know that passive wrath is being stored up for the return of Jesus Christ. Now, now heaven is not a place for people that are afraid of hell. It's a place for people who love Jesus. And when you come to the realization that you actually should be in hell, you will begin to love Jesus even more. So it says here that he's going to speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. This is verse 7. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. You see, his whole thing is considered hilarious. Do me a favor, flip over to, to Acts. This is a Bible study, right? Like, I don't teach from the Bible, we teach the Bible, right? Big difference, right? I just don't come up here and say what I want and then hope the Bible supplants it or, or supplements it. Move over to Acts 4 with me, if you would. I want you to see where this whole thing is being used because a lot of times we just segregate it to the Old Testament. Say, well, they, they had this weird, you know, God was like straight up putting kings in order and, and that's just not the world we live in. So Jesus comes and in Acts 4, you know the story. Peter and John were being bold, got arrested, brought before the Sanhedrin. Look in verse 23. Right? And right before this, they had what? In verse 18, they actually said, well, you can't talk about Jesus then. So you're like, See, this is so distant and so far. Did, Ten years ago, did you think that the Pentagon would be discussing whether or not to make a crime talking about Jesus in the military to other people? Like, you're, you're, you're rooming. I've been in the military. How many people have been in the military? Right? You're bunking with these people. You're living in the worst places on earth, right? How many people came to me in Iraq? They're like, hey, man, uh, so we're going out tomorrow, and I'd like to talk to you about some of that Bible stuff. Because they knew, right? They said, no atheists in a foxhole. You put face-to-face with mortality. You're like, all right, I'm willing to hear what you say, right? Ten years ago, do you think that we'd be discussing whether or not to make it a crime to discuss your faith in a military environment? Do you think that religious institutions or hospitals would be forced to give abortion pills? Don't think for a second that anyone here is at this church is under the guise that it's all hunky-dory. I'll tell you this, little inside information. Pastor Rob, not too long ago, brought the young preacher, and I'm like, People are like, oh, he's the young guy. Like, when you take a look at the young preachers that are, like, God's doing amazing. I'm like the old guy of the young crew, right? That's just kind of weird, you know? Like, ah, you're with the young crew, but you're, like, in bed at nine, right? What's the deal with that? And, and so he brought us in. He brought the young teachers up to his office, and he sat us down. And he said, look, we're kind of restructuring. We're doing some of this, you know, Sunday night service, all that sort of stuff. And he's like, look, I just want you guys to know that you may very well in a couple years be preaching from a prison cell. Like, oh, he's just being, Really? Look how far we've come in 10 years. 
You think it's that far? We are a baby nation. All the other nations have already gone through this phase. What makes you think we're going to be inoculated from it? They're still locking up Christians left and right. We act like we're just isolated from it. You got Canada, who we allow to exist. Mexico is not going to do anything. We're just like, eh, right? Pastor Rob Satisound said, you guys need to understand, you've been called to ministry. It ain't going to get easier. God's reconciling all things to himself, but that whole part about getting brought up by Christ, people are going to fight that. They're going to resist that. Everything's being reconciled. And so they've banned the name of Jesus. It says in verse 23, And being let go, they went to their own companions to report all the chief priests and elders had said to them. So, they went and heard, so when they had heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God. You made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by your mouth, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage? So we just read, and the people plot vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. They saw this as the exact same foolishness that we just read in Psalm 2. This is the same sort of foolish stuff that the world is going to pull. It's not, just an, it's not just separated to the Old Testament. It happens in the New Testament and it's happening today. My question is, do you trust him? Right? Because the point of a psalm is almost always summed up in that last verse and we're going there. And you, we've really got to start to grapple with, with how much trust because... The inverse of that is, is simply what, when you spend a lot of time focusing on, it may not be that you're willing to say, well, yeah, I trust God. Yeah, but how much of your daily efforts are spent contending with the world? It's to happen. We're, we're, in, we're in ministry, right? We're kicking back the gates of hell. That's an offensive posture. The gospel is offensive. It offends people and it pursues people. It's offensive in both regards. But how much of it is spent talking about all this when God looks down and sees crying babies? Do you trust me? Do you trust me that my ways are higher than your ways? That the things that I'm communicating to you about myself are the things that you actually need to be meditating on daily? And so we see this happening in the New Testament today. As he said, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son And this is the primary messianic picture of the Old Testament. Okay? You read the, the arc of the Old Testament and the reoccurring theme, of course, Jesus, it all points to Jesus, is this understanding that the heir of David will come. That's, that's the pri- I'm willing to say that's the primary messianic picture. The heir of David will come. And in 2 Samuel 7.14, if you're taking notes, God says... He says that he will take the heir of David as a son. And this is what's rad about the Old Testament. This is what's really, really cool. Because you always get to peel back different layers. Right? So the Old Testament is parallel pathing it to the coming of Jesus. It's always parallel pathing it. What God's doing is he's wrapping his redemptive story into the historicity of Israel. Right? And so you've got God's redemptive story where he's like, I'm going to show you this with this. And he's always doing that. Like I said, I'm teaching through Hosea. A prophet marries a prostitute, has to go pursue her, right? He says, look, Jesus is going to come down. You're going to be his bride. He's going to have to pursue you because you're spiritual sluts. 
You're prostitutes. You are running. You are holding up false idols. You are worshiping idols, right? So he's always saying, no, this actually happened. Because think about the implication if Hosea didn't actually happen. As some, even bigwigs like John Calvin are like, that's eh, allegorical. Allegorical? So a prophet couldn't marry a prostitute? Jeez, what does that say about God marrying me? Big implications, right? So he's always dealing, God's always dealing in this parallel path in the Old Testament. He says, look, so I'm going to wrap up my plan of redemption into the actual historicity of the kingdom, Israel. And so he's installing this king. He's using the language. He talks about earthly kings being anointed. He, he talks about Messiah being anointed. He talks about the kings of Israel. He talks about Jesus as a king of all, and he's parallel pathing it. And we see it here as he says, you are my son. He's speaking of the heir of David. He says, look, I'm working all this together. Do you get it? Do you see trials as pruning in your faith? See, because the parallel path doesn't necessarily stop at the cross. You know why? Because we've got, we've got the New Testament and what's going on in the New Testament? What's going on today? What are we looking for? History what? What's the common saying? History? All right, so what made you think it stopped at the cross? No, all this stuff is happening again. It's simply pointing to the return of Jesus. There's that twofold layer. So, so God is working his redemptive story into your mess. And by the Bible, he's showing you, look, you're not, if anything, stop thinking so highly of yourself. You are not the first person to go through this. Stop it. I've read the whole Bible. No one in here is in the Bible, right? Myself included. I got a name, but that's as close as it came, right? Bible's not about us. It's about God's redemptive story that has implications for us, right? And so you are my son. He's speaking of the heir of David. Of course, he's foreshadowing the coming Christ. He says, today I've begotten you. Verse eight, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them. A more common understanding of that word break is just simply rule. Okay, you shall rule them. And he's talking about the nations. He's not talking about Israel at this point. He's talking about the Gentile nations that are trying to revolt, right? He says, look, calm down. Do you trust me? Do you realize how silly you look from heaven when you're worried about, when you're so, so worried about who the next president is? It's okay to want to see Christian leaders. We get that. Civic discipleship. This is a church that teaches it probably more than any other church. Necessary. But Pastor Rob, Pastor Brett, none of the teachers will ever declare that you should spend the majority of your time worrying about that. Keep your things set on heaven. It says, you shall break, like I said, you shall rule them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse 10, now therefore be wise, O king. Now he's speaking to the the leaders. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. When was the last time you juxtaposed those two reactions? Oh, it scared me. Hallelujah, right? We don't generally do that in day-to-day life. That's why this is not, when you're protected by Christ, when you read through the wrath of God, when you read through rejoicing and trembling, you get it. She's like, dang, that's a mighty storm going on, but Jesus is my umbrella and I ain't got to worry about it. And so you read about this trembling, you read about that sort of stuff, but again, understanding the gravity and the wrath and the anger and the fury, some of the translations earlier in this passage use the word fury of God. 
actually makes you adore him more for what he did because you know for a fact you don't deserve it. If you think you do deserve it, talk to me afterwards, right? We all deserve the wrath. You come before a judge, there is only one sentence, guilty, every single time. It's whether or not God sees you through the work on the cross that matters. It's how you respond to the guilty verdict. You're all, we are all guilty. And God says, do you trust me? that I'm working all this together for good in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, 2013, do you trust me? It says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Some of the Psalms have titles. If this one had one, I would be the first guy vetting for this being a title. Kiss the sun the sun, right? Featuring Mick Jagger and Justin Bieber, right? Like just kind of wrap everyone in on the whole thing, right? We'll just figure it out, okay? See, I got both segments that time, right? Now, which one made you laugh is, you know, where you're on that line, right? And I'm right in the middle because I don't listen to either of them, so. It says, kiss the sun lest he be angry. You take a look at the ancient understanding of kiss, even modern, You generally leave the whole passionate thing aside, right? Just gets weird and awkward, right? A kiss between non-spouses represented two things. Do you know what they are? Think back to medieval movies. Think back to British movies. Subjugation and friendship, right? And so you would kiss, what, the ring of of a king, the hand, the cheek, and you'd kiss your friend in the same manner, right? Like the Europeans still doing it. Kissing out of subjugation, and friendship. And it says, kiss the sun. See, some of us come here tonight and, and, and we begrudgingly kiss Jesus as a king. And we read words like anger and, and we have this mistrust. We have this mistrust because of all the dirty that's going on in the world. All the sin that's fractured and we encounter it every day. And so maybe we come to him as a king and we're, we're begrudgingly we kiss him and say, all right, you know what? Fine, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to follow you. All right. But I don't trust you. Now, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to go on Wednesday so the pastor thinks I'm legit. Right? Not just, I'm not going to be one of those just Sunday morning only weirdos. Right? I'm going to come on Wednesday, show him I'm serious. Jesus is my king. A little worried about what he's going to do if I don't go to church. So some of you, you have a very easy time kissing Jesus as king. You don't see him as a friend. Others of us come to him as a friend. He's our, he's our buddy, he's our homie. I so, say, yeah, I love, love Jesus, right? I don't read the Old Testament or that part where he got mad in the temple or Revelation. No, stick to Kumbaya Jesus, right? Santa Claus Jesus, hop up in his lap. Ah! You know, that's cool. No worries. It's way more awkward for you than me, so don't worry. <laughs> and so some of us approach Jesus as a, as a mere friend, but he doesn't have authority over you. Jesus came, what are the three offices? Prophet, priest, and king, right? And what was the king of Israel supposed to do? God's anointed kings, foreshadowing the coming king, not only on the cross, but in Revelation, the return. What is the point of the king? To, over, to oversee stuff? Yeah, but they got the, you got the politicians for that. Write laws. 
right? You even see this today. You, you look over in England. I lived in London for a while. You still got the royal family stuff. You're like, what is your purpose? Like, what are you doing? Cool house, by the way. But honestly, what do you do all day? What's the point? What's the point of the modern royal family, even in the ancient times? It's to simply to show you how to live the best life in that culture. It's to be the ideal Israelite. That's, that's the point of it, right? He, he might go sword, you know, grab a sword every once in a while and go truck around with the military and stuff like that, right? But the royal family today, do they serve a real function? No, but what they're doing is they're posturing for the people, right? So the princes go and they, they join the military. Say, look, this is part of being a proper Brit. I've trained with those guys. I ran one of the biggest operations in the UK. We, we, oh my gosh, it was amazing. They're amazing troops over there, right? And they've got a king, a figure. I said, look, this is part of being a legit Brit. I'm gonna copyright that, right? Legit Brit. And so that's what the king was intended to do. Right, so you, you come to Jesus as friend and you don't realize that, that he's actually perfecting what it means to be man, to be woman. He's perfecting it. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus showed us perfection in the flesh. Tempted without sin. And empowered by the Holy Spirit. So he showed us how to live today. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. A lot of people miss that. Right? Jesus showed up on the scene, went down, dunked, oh, baptized. What happened? Holy Spirit came down. Bam. Now he shows you the Christian life is about being tapped into the Holy Spirit. Even back then. That's how Jesus did it. And that's how he's modeling it for us today. So some of you come to him as a friend. You're like, yeah, but he's not my king. He doesn't rule over every area of my life. I compartmentalize. I go to church. I don't leave that. I leave that at church. I don't take it to the workplace. I don't do this full time. I got to get right up tomorrow morning and go back to the office. Same as almost all of you. Work in a secular environment. Preach restoration and then show up tomorrow for an eight o'clock meeting, right? With people that I do not want restored, right? Just, yeah. Look at Revelation, right? And so... So I wonder though, when you're, when you're kind of straddling this understanding of Christ, when we kiss the son, we kiss him as both king and as friend. That's the proper understanding. It says kiss the son. And you notice that all the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, right? And one of the biggest beefs they had with Jesus is that he didn't quote follow the law. He didn't quote follow the rules. He touched the unclean. He touched them. That's in violation of Jewish law. You are not a good Jew if you touch the dirty. And so we come and we kiss Christ. We kiss him on the cheek as savior and friend. What happened when Jesus touched the unclean? See, the lack of understanding is that those people were still unclean when he touched them. At the touch of Christ, you're now seen as perfect. It says, be perfect as your father is perfect. I can't do that. You're right, Jesus has. And so you kiss Jesus as king and as friend and you come as a dirty peasant beggar and you kiss him and you're clean. You embrace Christ as your king and your friend, as your savior, Lord God, king in Christ. You kiss him as king and as friend. You say, I trust you both as my king, as my sovereign king who rules over me and as my friend to be there every step of the way. And now you're clean and walking before God. And so it says, kiss the son, lest he be angry. Because he's going to be angry. We've talked about Revelation. I think I beat that dead horse long enough. Okay? It's going to be a little awkward at first, right? Like Revelation, if it happens before we die, it's going to be a little awkward, right? Like, like the armies of God come down. 
Like, have you thought about that, seeing people you know? Like, Grandpa, you look good. Holy smokes, where are you going? You look angry, right? They come right back, you're like, where's my helmet? Okay, right, I'm with Grandpa on this one. It's gonna be a little awkward. Jesus is gonna come back. That beating happened once. That cross happened once. Never again. He put sin to death on the cross. He became sin. God turned from him, put him to death. It's the ultimate sign of repentance. God turned from sin and put it to death. That's how we understand what repentance means. Jesus became sin, and as sin, he was put to death so that that chasm could be bridged. But all of this is still pointing forward, is it not? The story is not over. We know how it ends. That's the luxury of being a Christian. Like I read the whole book, know how it ends. God, I trust you. No matter what I'm going through in my life, I trust you. What you're doing, God, is that I understand that you're wrapping your story of salvation into my circumstances and we're all driving forward just as the Old Testament was doing, just as the New Testament is doing, and today everything is driving to the returning king. And the only thing that matters is whether or not you accept him as king and friend. And so it says, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Let us not forget what psalms are. Psalms are vehicles of prayer and praise. As Paul speaks of in Romans 11, he says, we've been grafted into God's people. You're not Gentiles. You're not anything but Christian. Curious note, the title Christian is only used how many times in the New Testament? Twice. Hundreds of times it's described as what? Being in Christ. It is not simply a title for you to flirt around and throw around at the workplace. It is something that you are in and by God's glory, he is reflected through you. And so it says, as we said, blessed are those who put their trust in him. Why are you crying? What in your life is causing you to squabble in earthly issues over and over? I've been in those debates. They go nowhere. I've been in those circumstances. They go nowhere. The world doesn't need more people saying I'm revolting against God and they certainly doesn't need more Christians saying we're just gonna sit here and argue about it. The world needs to see Christ in you. If there's anything good in you, it's Christ. And when you reflect Christ, when you put your trust in him as king and as friend, you begin to shine what God has done for you, first and foremost, to a broken and a dark world. And that's what kings were intended to do, was to bring light to the nations. Tonight, as we sing, let's not forget that, again, we've been grafted into this olive tree, as it says in Romans 11. As we worship, we join voices together with the ancient people before a God who is not dismayed. He's not shaken. He's not stirred by the things of this world. He simply says, come to me. You're broken, you're fractured, I know that. I'm your king, I'm your friend. Put your trust in me and you will be blessed. That's the call tonight as we go into this last bit. Remember, we're singing before a God that holds time in his hand, the concept of time. All he simply wants from us tonight is to submit to him as king 
and come and have himself come alongside us as a friend. I pray tonight that our prayer would be, Jesus, be my king. I understand that I was created for you, by you. And that when I trust you, as a sovereign king and as a friend, you will shine what you've done for me to a dark nation. And that's why we worship Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for tonight. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you, back, thank, thank you for peeling back those, those layers of, of any confusion that anyone has in, in regards to the Old Testament, mine included. Thank you for constantly pointing us forward, but lest us not forget that we're still being pointed forward to the return of our King. You're coming back. I may make light of it, but it's going to be no laughing matter. You're going to come back. You took the beating once, never again. We come before you as King and friend, and we say, Jesus, we love you, and we trust you. Amen.